and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. Very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Kobus, today we're going to be staying in your neighborhood in South Africa to talking about the budding love affair, relationship, romance, however you want to frame it, between China and South Africa. Now, this is something that's been building up over the past few years. We've touched on it a couple of times, but really it's coming to uh, a crescendo in the past few weeks, in part because of the dramatic economic events that are underway in China. The stock market over the past few weeks, the devaluation of the yuan, and the slump in commodity prices have all had a dramatic impact on Africa, particularly South Africa. The currency, the rand in South Africa, has hit lows for weeks now on weak economic news coming out of China. But all of this comes amid a background of tightening relationship between the two sides. And the leadership from both sides are expressing what? Me worry? Nope, not at all. In July, Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa, he visited Beijing. Mandarin language education now will be part of the, the curriculum in South Africa as of next year. The ANC and the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, are collaborating on a new party training school in South Africa. But lest we think this is all on the government level, let's not forget South Africa is also home to NASPERS, Africa's largest media company, which made its fortune through an investment in the Chinese social networking site Tencent. Hisense is now manufacturing there, electronics, and one of China's largest automakers, First Automotive Works, is building small buses on the Eastern Cape. The list of Chinese companies in South Africa is endless, and it's going on and on. So politics, economics, business, all of this is coming together. One man who's been writing a lot about this re recently is Philip DeWitt, an associate editor at the Mail and Guardian newspaper in Johann Johannesburg. And uh, he's going to give us a little bit of the high-level view. Welcome to the show, Philip. Hello, gentlemen. Good to be here. Wonderful to have you here. Why is it that the rest of Africa that spent millions of dollars out of their central banks this past week uh, trying to defend their currency in light of the Chinese devaluation of the UN, and a lot of Africans are now expressing shock and alarm, but in South Africa, the leadership there is really kind of relaxed about everything that's been going on. Why do you think that is? It's not clear to us, and that's why we've been exploring this issue. We've we've stood somewhat amused at the at the quick growth of, as you say, this love affair between China and South Africa, and it really seems to be picking up pace now. Of course, I mean, coming up in December, the the all important FOCAC, uh, I think it's FOCAC six meeting, will be happening in South Africa. So South Africa will be hosting this policy conference that will have at least some influence on Chinese policy towards Africa. Africa for the next three years or so. So there's, you know, there's, there's that time element to it. Um, but it, it's quite remarkable. As we speak, I, I haven't actually checked the flight schedules, but President Jacob Zuma should just be on his way now to China for the uh, September 2nd celebrations. Um, he's, he's basically crossing in midair with Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa, who just came back uh, and not only returned from that July trip, but returned from that July trip to go straight to Parliament um, and start extolling the virtues of the state-owned enterprise 
enterprise model in China. Um, we still have this raging debate in South Africa about the teaching of, of Mandarin in schools. It seems to be heading to the positive. I, I think the majority of South Africans see this as a as an opportunity, although there's a, a little bit of suspicion, you know, a little bit of xenophobia in the air is still there. Um, but the, the underneath all of this is an economic relationship that remains vastly unequal. The trade imbalance between South Africa and China is absolutely ludicrous. It's been growing steadily worse since the South African government in 2012 pointed to it and said, guys, this can't go on. We, we have to change this. We, we can't su- sustain this trade imbalance. Um, there, there are all kinds of factors that, that would argue against a very close relationship, and yet the relationship is growing ever closer. It's a, it's a bit of a paradox. Philip, in your your you published an article in Melon Guardian um, with the the provocative um, headline "South Africa and China: A Love Founded on State Control." I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit, and to which extent are we seeing kind of overlapping and complementary state and party cultures playing a role here? Look, state-owned enterprises are, of course, a, a bone of some contention in South Africa at the moment. We've got the state-owned electricity monopoly, ESCOM, um, that is regularly engaging in what's called load shedding, where parts of the country have the lights turned off because there isn't enough electricity going around. Um, we have the flag carrier, South African Airways, which is just soaking up money, bailout after bailout. Um, the, the National Post Office is currently in crisis, and, and South Africa doesn't seem to have found its way around state-owned enterprises yet. So in light of this context, we have Deputy President Cyril Ramaphosa come back from China and go, guys, the Chinese have figured out state-owned enterprises. You should see what they're doing. It's tremendous. It's enormous. We should immediately do everything that they're doing in South Africa and taking apparently no cognizance of the vast differences um, between Chinese history and South African history between the status of these state-owned enterprises about the economy. Um, the the plans are made, and as best we can tell, the, the places are actually being reserved at the moment in Chinese uh, institutions for the training of South African executives at state-owned enterprises. So the idea is that we send off these executives, uh, they go to the government schools um, in China, and they come back infused with uh, all of the knowledge that they need to to turn things around so we've been we've been looking at this and, and being slightly puzzled again um, at why the government is so certain that the Chinese model will work in South Africa not least of all at a time when it seems that the Chinese model is not necessarily working in China when you know there's some serious questions being raised about the performance of those state-owned entities yeah I mean it's terrifying in in many senses to read the headlines coming out of South Africa uh, I forget who it was it was a minister of some kind who came back a couple weeks ago and talked about you know China's got opposition parties which of course we know that yeah, China doesn't it have was it, it was Tami Kaplaiki the, the I think advisor to the presidency if, I, if I'm yeah, correct Yeah and and you know referred to Chinese opposition parties of course there are no Chinese opposition parties China's a one party state uh, now we see you know the deputy president you know extolling the virtues of China state owned enterprises anybody who spent any amount of time in China knows that these are bloated enterprises that are not very efficient that benefit off of you know government loans the Chinese themselves see them as corrupt beyond all imagination. I'm not saying anything that's controversial here. So it's in some senses disconcerting to see that the deputy president is so excited about this. And it 
kind of begs the question for me as an outsider to both of you, who is speaking here? Are we talking about the African National Congress, the party that's excited to be collaborating with another similar party in the, in the form of the Chinese Communist Party, or is this the state of South Africa that is also speaking here, state to state? I mean, or are those so intertwined, like in China, that you can't really tell the difference between the two? Exactly, exactly. That, that's the situation you're dealing with. You, you have a situation in South Africa where essentially the, the kind of structures of state have merged with the structures of the party to such an extent that it's difficult to imagine how they'll be disentangled, it is increasingly becoming very difficult to imagine the ANC losing an election and then somehow leaving, like vacating those structures of government, because no one has any idea how that would happen. Um, you know, kind of, so in, in that sense, I think the, to my mind, um, and Philip, I'd, I'd love to hear what you think about this, um, but I, I, I think there's a certain kind of a, a shared culture of, 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 of big party Essentially, de facto one-party state politics, you know, kind of that, that that is increasingly kind of overlapping. And I think, you know, kind of there is, you know, the 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 the, the, the um, Tami comment of China having opposition parties wasn't only the, the the weird part of that wasn't only this weird idea that they have opposition parties, but also the comment that the opposition parties are working together with the with the Chinese Communist Party and you know kind of constructively, not kind of negatively trying to break down you know kind of the the work of 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 the big party. So and you, I, so I mean it's very clear to, to you know kind of the the message that's being sent in South Africa, which has a very very combative opposition, albeit very small opposition. Um, Philip, what do you think? Well, there is a great deal of party-to-party -party admiration, um, and and it's very open. Um, the African National Congress has already been sending members of the party to China for uh, political training to to go to various political schools and training camps, um, and to learn not only about Chinese ideology but about the the application of that ideology. Um, there's a great deal of admiration within the African National Congress of the developmental state model um, in China. There's, you know, the, the ANC has this problem where it's it's kind of split amongst those who would like to see uh, privatization of state assets and those who want to see the state leverage state-owned enterprises um, for development. It's, it's something that threatens to tear the party apart, really. And in China, the ANC sees kind of a, a hybrid model where there's a bit of privatization but it's still state-controlled and state-run, and you know where the the state-owned enterprises are still uh, used uh, to move towards developmental goals. So these are the kind of things that resonate strongly within the. ANC and and the differences just seem to go away. You know the the as you point out, Eric, the, the marked differences in the political landscape. Um, I think sometimes deep uh, at at night, you know, when no one is watching, there are people within the African National Congress who wish uh, that they could have the kind of stranglehold over South African media, for instance, that you see in in China. The the government. I, I think some the some media. of them have actually said that on the record. They 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 talk they talk about the 
patriotic media in China, you know, and how everyone is is moving towards the same goal. Yeah, and and, and they phrase it in in those kinds of terms. I think where the greatest admiration really lies is what the ANC sees as the policy clarity of the Chinese Communist Party about the way that the Chinese Communist Party can have a five-year plan, a 10-year developmental plan, and, and can really harness uh, the country behind that. Um, the ANC often tell us that they feel like they're herding cats in South Africa. You know, they come up with a plan and they can't get anyone to agree with it and no one wants to work with them. And, you know, um, we we have this uh, the word in South Africa, chacharach, that everyone is chacharach, which basically means that people keep talking back and, and they won't just, you know, put their shoulders to the wheel. And perhaps therein lies uh, what what the ANC would really like to emulate in South Africa. Just get everyone behind them, behind their developmental plan, and just shut up and get the work done. Yeah, I mean, that is sounds like a vast oversimplification of the Chinese political system. And it's one of those things that I think that from afar, China may look that way. But when you put the magnifying glass as to how the Chinese political system actually plays out in day to day, uh, it's highly combative, highly fractured, nowhere near as centralized or as organized as many people on the outside would think. I mean, I think there's this perception, particularly it seems like in places like Pretoria, where, you know, Xi Jinping wakes up one morning and says, you know what, everybody's going to eat oatmeal today. And the whole country eats oatmeal. And that's really something left over from the Mao era. And so I really wonder, it, it makes me wonder how sophisticated uh, South African politicians really are about the way that the Chinese political system works at the granular, at the detail level. And brings up David Shambaugh, who's one of the great Sinologists. He wrote a book uh, last year, I think, where he talked about really the deficiencies in Africa of understanding China and how it sets so many African governments at a disadvantage when negotiating with the Chinese. And I wonder about this when I see these ignorant statements coming out of so many South African or ANC leaders. And so how sophisticated do you think these people are when it comes to understanding really what's going on in China? Uh, th there is no sophistication in the South African view of China. It is hugely simplistic. It is oversimplified to the point of absurdity. Uh, it, it takes no cognizance of, of the nuance at all. And of course, there are exceptions to the rule. Uh, you know, there are analysts and people within government who I think get it. But your average South African, us in the media and, and certainly government functionaries, simply don't get it. When confronted with paradoxes, uh, the, we'll wave our hands and talk about oh, you know, it's the inscrutability of the Orient. Of course, we can't understand it. Um, the, the, uh, there's, there's kind of, there's a very utopian view. There's a very rose-tinted glass effect that happens when, when we look at China. And I mean, it's, it's been said internally any number of times and, and there's some uh, political analysts who are watching in horror as our view of China grows ever more simplified and ever more optimistic um, and just shake their heads sadly. But uh, Nothing they say or do seems seems to change that opinion. I see this a lot in you know kind of in my own work as well because a lot of my my own research is about the way that that China is imaged and narrated you know kind of in um, in South Africa especially um, and what I find a lot is that China is kind of a fantasy construction um, and it's a fantasy construction where you can't leave the West out. You know, kind of, it's the the way that the, that China is constructed is is fundamentally, 
influenced by how people feel about the West. So frequently, you know, kind of at the moment, I'm, I'm busy with with research at the moment at the way uh, in which um, the rhino and, I, and ivory uh, poaching crisis is, you know, is discussed in in, in South African popular media. Um, and, you know, kind of there you have a lot of kind of negative perceptions of China as this kind of out of control monster of sex and, and decadence. Um, you know, kind of that that is very fundamentally, you know, kind of influenced by how the West thought of China, especially in the 19th century, um, and then frequently the, this utopian vision of China that, that that you refer to, Philip, is in a way also a reaction to the West. I mean, so much of that is China is not West and therefore better. You know, kind of so 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 much of of that kind of way of thinking of China. China has this better other option. You know, kind of that it's not as as kind of corrupt or as unfair or as racist as the West. Um, so in the end, it becomes this weird thing where you just can't really stop talking about the West, even when you're talking about China. Um, and I think that's part of the big problem here. Well, it, it sounds exactly right. Um, fairly recently, in, in the last couple of weeks, we've had the publication of the African National Congress's uh, policy discussion documents. Um, these are a set of documents that will go to a conference that will determine African National Congress policy and thus effectively South African policy into the future. And it's remarkable how these documents um, contrast the United States and China in particular. Um, uh, it, it will speak about how uh, the United States, uh, you know, is this great neo-imperialist evil um, as opposed to China, which which is leading us into a multipolar world. Um, it'll talk about how uh, the U.S. is trying to de destabilize Latin America and uh, also, by the way, destabilize China and Russia and about economic warfare against these countries, whereas China is willing to invest in Africa and, you know, their partners that we can trust. And that thread just runs, it comes up again and again and again in these documents. Um, it, it really does seem, I, I hear what Quiver says when he, when he talks about China being the, the opposite of the West um, in the eyes of our policymakers in South Africa. Um, everything that is put on paper points towards that, yes. But let's let's kind of step away now from the the policy side, the policymaker side, and, and look at the people. You know, South Africa is home to the largest population of Chinese migrants in, in all of Africa. Uh, it's a population that is that dates back a very very long time. Um, you know, obviously South Africa is a multiracial society in many ways, far more diverse than other countries in Africa. What's your sense that how the 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 masses are seeing this relationship, if they are seeing it at all? We've been watching xenophobia very closely in, in South Africa and especially in South African townships. We we have had a couple of incidents lately, again, where xenophobic violence has flared up and where uh, especially foreign shopkeepers have been targeted uh, and had their shops looted and, and so on. Um, some, some nasty instances of violence. Um, some of those, but very few of those shopkeepers were Chinese. So I, I must stress that we, we've got a very large population of Somali shopkeepers in South African townships, um, quite a few Pakistanis or Indian shopkeepers, people from Bangladesh. Um, and the, the Chinese shopkeepers, such as they are, were, were not directly targeted. But that has seen us explore these uh, attitudes towards foreigners in, in South Africa. And again and again, 
we find this strange thing where people of African descent, even uh, second-generation immigrants from elsewhere in Africa, in South Africa, face a considerable harder time than, for instance, your Chinese immigrants. Um, People from Nigeria and the Democratic Republic of Congo are viewed with far more suspicion than people of Chinese descent. And I can't tell you why. I don't think any of our sociologists have yet put their finger quite on why that is. But it's in stark contrast to places like Angola, for instance, where we see that uh, Chinese immigrants are treated with vast amounts of suspicion, um, you know, and they're they're the the target of public ire to an extent that we simply don't see in South Africa. Um, I'm just going to count that up to the inscrutability of the Orient again, because (laughs) I can't tell you why. Well, you know, kind of friends of mine who who academics who work in migration um, have mentioned to me that there are increasingly even even though Chinese shopkeepers aren't necessarily targeted, um, you know, kind of as much as Somalis um, or Congolese, the paranoia that they are going to be is very very strong in in the community, um, and you know, kind of that together with with perceptions that they that they come in. Um, for a lot of police harassment and a lot of kind of corrupt police treatment, you know, kind of like demanding of bribes, um, and also for for crime, just just you know, kind of non-xenophobic, just simple simple crime, um, you know, kind of that 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 perception runs high, and that is at the moment combining with with worries about the the weakening of the South African economy, and apparently there is quite a lot of back reverse migration back to China, um, you know, kind of happening, as well as onward migration to other countries. Mm. Um, so, you know, kind of like uh, acquaintances and friends of mine who, are, for example, are from the from uh, communities that came before the, the current Fujian migration wave to South Africa, who came from, for example, from Taiwan um, during the 1970s, whose families came, came from there. Um, almost none of the relatives are, you know, kind of are in South Africa anymore. You know, kind of like they grew up with large families in South Africa and almost all of the relatives are living in Canada and the US and the UK and so on. So there's a lot of onward migration as well. Um, and, and a lot of that uh, um, is is driven by perceptions that it's getting harder and harder and harder to do business in South Africa. It's harder to make money than it used to be. Um, and they're being harassed and they're, they're being victimized. So, you know, kind of, so, so the perceptions have their own power, I think. Hey, Philip, let's just wrap this conversation up by looking forward a little bit. So we're seeing the continued integration on the political level, the party level. Clearly, the uh, the economies of the two are bound when you see the RAND move in sync with all of the economic data coming out of China. Where Where's this all going in the next three to five years? Uh, to a deeper and greater love, um, absolutely. There is absolutely no sign whatsoever, even in the midst of, of this upheaval in Chinese markets, there is no sign whatsoever that the South African government or the African National Congress, for that matter, are reconsidering their policy positions on China, um, that they'll be doing anything but moving closer to China. The the medium-term plans, the long-term plans, all of the frameworks have China at their heart, uh, the, the, the focus on China is unrelenting, uh, and there, there seems to be absolutely nothing that can change that. Wow. Cobus, did that surprise you? Um, no, not really. You know, kind of, I, we, we have been seeing this for a while. What, what I'm very interested in is to see whether it, that 
close alignment can actually migrate out of these super elite levels and actually kind of move down, you know, kind of down the ladder to to more to everyday South African life. I mean, the teaching of Mandarin will be very interesting to watch in in South African schools. I am very doubtful that they're going to be pull, able to pull it off. I just have no idea how they're going to pay for it and where the teachers are coming from. Even with Chinese government funding, which I saw in some some regions, you know, kind of discussion that they might be funding coming for it. Even with funding, I'd be very doubtful about whether it can actually be widely implemented. But we'll see. Um, and you know, kind of, an, if if kids start learning Mandarin, if if lots of South African kids start learning Mandarin, then that's going to be an interesting kind of generational shift. You know, kind of that that could bring some kind of closer alignment, a, a more permanent closer alignment. Um, but yeah, it's it's early days, I guess. Listen, as a Mandarin speaker myself, I think it would be just fantastic if a lot of South African children learn Mandarin, just because it just opens up the world. I mean, for you see a different universe when you speak other people's languages. I got to say that I'm just so fed up with the xenophobic reaction from the teachers unions there about the about language studies and that it's uh, some kind of neo-imperialism or colonialism. Uh, so just my last two words there on, uh, on language learning. Listen, if you want to follow what's been going on in South Africa in the relationship with China, there's no better place to go than over to the Mail and Guardian's website. Do a search for Philip DeVette. He's been writing on this quite a bit. There's uh, two really good articles that I'd like to point you to. Uh, Essay, South Africa and China, A Love Founded on State Control that was written on uh, the 21st of August. And then an essay that came out, a news analysis, just uh, last week on the 28th of August, South Africa Stays Loyal as Chinese Party Fizzles, talking about the economic relationship and how really... You know, South Africa is standing by while others are fretting a lot more. Philip, thank you so much for joining us on the show and for your excellent writing and analysis on the subject. What we'd like to do at the end of every program is really kind of connect you with our audience. And if people want to follow what you're reading and writing and what you're reporting on these days, what's the best way that they can stay in touch with you? Mailing Guardian website is is always a good option. I'm all over Twitter as Philip DeVette, uh, or just do the search for Mailing Guardian. Google Google will point you to me. That's mg.co.za. Uh, really, we post almost every article that's related to China Africa on our Facebook page at facebook.com slash China Africa Project, where Cobus and I are updating the site uh, 24 hours a day, actually, which is rather compulsive and obsessive, Cobus. Yeah, it's 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 worrying. <laughs> um, but I so I'm there. I'm usually see on our Facebook page, and I'm also on Twitter at Stalinesk. That's S T A D N E S Q U E. And Facebook is a great place for if you've got questions about China Africa relations, or you disagree with what we say here on the podcast. Uh, let us know. Just post up right there, or you can contact me. At, on Twitter, I'm at E-O-Lander, E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. But if all of this is a little too intense and just too much, and you just want a little bit of China Africa news, we really recommend our weekly newsletter. Go to our website at ChinaAfricaProject.com. You can sign up. Cobus and I put together four or five articles, really the top stories, including actually some of Philip's reporting. Uh, and we send that out to you every Monday afternoon. So you can, uh, it'll be in your email inbox, and that's a great way just to stay on top of the top stories. So we'll be back again very soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>